Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith Podcast here at Outsider. I don't even know where to begin this week. Um, it's been the most surreal last several days in the college football world for all of us that work in the college football world. Um, Wes and Travis are with me per usual. Wes is at his home base in Georgia. Travis is at the Outsider Studio in Nashville. Brandon also at Outsider HQ behind the board in Nashville. And I guess before we get to Travis's depression about the Ohio State Buckeyes getting beaten by the Michigan Wolverines and Jim Harbaugh, uh, let's hop into the news first. Lincoln Riley made the decision that he was going to leave Norman, Oklahoma and head out to Hollywood to the University of Southern California, and the ripple effect of that is dramatic. We're still kind of right in the middle of that ripple effect, working to determine what even it means. This has been one of the oddest, quickest shifting coaching carousel uh, 48-hour periods that I can recall during my career in life. And Lincoln's departure from Norman has so many tentacles to it. First, let's just discuss the why. Um, in my estimation, when the Sooners lost Bedlam to Mike Gundy and the Oklahoma State Cowboys, it set forth a warp speed moment in Lincoln Riley's life where the Southern Cal job became dramatically more enticing. Uh, I don't know, I've not spoken with Lincoln or anyone in his camp yet about kind of how long this was going on, what was involved in the decision. But ultimately, I think it comes down to something very fundamental in today's college football landscape, and that is a far simpler path to the college football playoff and thereby an opportunity to win a national championship. Oklahoma, as everyone knows, will at some point in the next few years make its way to the Southeastern Conference which is a gauntlet unlike any other in the collegiate athletic landscape. And uh, it's extremely difficult to get through that gauntlet and have a national presence and an opportunity to win a national championship. He can go out to Southern California. That is a, as talent-rich an area as there is in the country. If you look at his recruiting um, scores in in recent years uh, out of California. You know he's already really done a great job of penetrating that high school talent base. He can return Southern Cal to national prominence. Winning the Pac-12 will be a far easier prospect than winning the SEC. Running the table in the Pac-12 or maybe a one-loss season is a far easier prospect than it is in the SEC and thereby playing for and winning conference championships is a far easier prospect. With that, uh, Wes, what, what's your, your thought on this seismic shift in college football? Well, I think it's a move that we haven't seen anything like going from Big 12 to finally seeing USC get a hire that we all, I, I assume, uh, we all think is an astronomical home run. And uh, I think it goes to what we were talking about with old Travis a couple weeks ago. Was Oklahoma ready to immediately do a cannonball into the SEC, regardless of when it 
made that entrance? I think not. And I'm not saying that Lincoln was scared of that, but that road has fewer, way fewer speed bumps to the college football playoff. And look, we don't know what the college football playoff will look like uh, by the time Oklahoma's able to compete in the SEC. It may be at 12 by that point. We have no idea. There's a lot of question marks. But as we saw in this past summer, things change quickly in college football. And with the recruiting wins that Lincoln is already seeing uh, and we expect to see at USC, I think it could be scary, a scary quick turnaround for a program that has been trying and searching for answers uh, the last several years. Since Pete Carroll. I think it's interesting, though, Saturday night after the game, he was asked about where if he was going to be leaving, and he cut the reporter off and said, I will not be at LSU next year. A very savvy move to get his answer the out there, get the answer out there with the truth before the reporter could say, you know, will you be at Oklahoma next year or anything? He, he was able to narrow it down to LSU and he didn't lie. And then he had everybody believe in that he's staying at Oklahoma. It was, it was a crazy time. And then, I mean, he's not, it's, he's leaving Alex Grinch is leaving the receivers coach is leaving. Like this is a seismic move. And several, world-class recruits four and five star players have decommitted five so far including the 20 uh the number one quarterback in the 2023 class who lives in california number two the number one is arch manning that oh, correct. Was the number, yes, correct. He's, he's the number two i think his name is malachi nelson yes brandon or travis looked that up i think that's the case the biggest thing here too is not only the SEC factor and the simpler, for lack of a better term, path of least resistance to the college football playoff and a potential championship is, I mean, it makes USC sexy again. Uh, it makes that this marquee landing spot for all of that talent in the state. And look, Lincoln Riley is in his late 30s. I mean, he is still so young, and he obviously has done a great job with quarterbacks and offensive proficiency during his time at Oklahoma. Baker Mayfield won the Heisman Trophy and was the number one pick. Kyler Murray won the Heisman Trophy and was the number one pick. Jalen Hurts was a Heisman finalist and has done a very good job with the Philadelphia Eagles. And so obviously you look at that as a high school recruit if you're a multi-dimensional quarterback and say i want to play for that guy look at i mean spencer rattler has a tremendous god-given skill set caleb williams has a tremendous god-given skill set both of them went to play for lincoln and it's been a i mean they lost a couple games in norman but by their standards um, I think the statistic is they've played for the Big 12 championship every single year since 2017. Is that right? Travis, look that up. Uh, that could be wrong. But, I, look, that's the standard at Oklahoma is to play for the Big 12 championship. They will not do that in 2021. And uh, Lincoln Riley landed this morning as we tape this. It's Monday afternoon. This morning he landed 
in California and later today will be formally introduced by the athletics director at Southern Cal as the next football coach there. They won the Big 12. Uh, the last time they didn't was in 2014 when there was no Big 12 uh, championship game. That was the Baylor okay. TCU year. All right, so they have won the conference every year since 2015, right? That's yep. the way to say it? <laughs> yep. They have won the conference. I mean, it, six in it, a row. It, it's you know, it's it's remarkable in in the Power Five to to do that, and now he's going to take that talent and that vision out west. Look, guys, this is this is this is a massive massive shift, and if you look at the relevance of the Pac-12 nationally. It's really going to, like, if I'm the Pac-12 commissioner. The Pac-12 hasn't been in the playoffs since Washington. And when was that, by the way? I mean, good 16, grief. The Pac-12's, yeah, the Pac-12's been on its own drought. So Lincoln just needs to breathe a little bit of that Oklahoma life out there. And the Sooners have made it to the playoff. They haven't really done much once they got there. But th this fan base, this conference is starving. You know, they're starving in a way that a lot of fan bases really can't imagine. A lot of conferences can't imagine. They are thirsty. I mean, they're thirstier than anyone at Lincoln Riley's house is after they take a bite of his brisket. They are in a drought, brother. And the good news for Lincoln is that he doesn't have to, you know, impress people with his brisket smoking skills in Southern California. He can just turn that into a little uh, tri-tip and he'll do just fine. So it's, it's a big win be, on a lot of fronts. I mean, again, I think that, that, that everybody wins that, that is in his sphere except for Oklahoma. And I feel so bad for them, man. It's going to be fascinating to see where this goes. Um, there are names flying around. Obviously, it's a marquee job. Um, they're moving to the SEC with all of that grant of rights money coming. Uh, their facilities are awesome already. They've recruited at a very high level. They'll have to continue to do that, certainly as they make their way towards the SEC, where the Georgias and the Alabamas look. Ole Miss, I was explaining last night to my wife's family, they were very perplexed by all this. And why Lincoln Riley made this decision, and I tried to explain to them exactly what I just tried to explain here in this opening segment of the podcast. But, you know, you, 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 you take the thing in its totality and you look at the SEC like this. Ole Miss won 10 football games. All right, Ole Miss won 10 football games. They're not even in the national championship conversation. They're not going to play for their conference championship. They've had an amazing season under Lane Kiffin and behind Matt Corral. And what? You know, I mean, they're going to play in a great bowl game, and it's been an awesome year, and Lane's already out on the Cruton Trail. But that just tells you how hard it is to get through the Southeastern Conference gauntlet. Just look at Ole Miss. Can we uh, take a look at Lane's Twitter game, though? We know it's strong. Yeah, thank and you for bringing that up. On last night, I think it was yesterday, on uh, Sunday, that is, once again, Lane 
wins Twitter with the whole LSU news and he posts a photo of some license plate with a, it's a Louisiana license plate and just gets people up and going. Nobody does Twitter Texas license plate better than Lane. He is brilliant. Well, I said last night, there are a lot of collegiate football awards that go to individuals, uh, units and coaches and coordinators within the next 10 to 15 years, there needs to be an annual college football award that goes to the, the football coach that can use the internet the best. And it needs to be called the Kiffin Award because Lane is an excellent troll. He's hilarious, has a great sense of humor, and he knows what he's doing. And last night, he was the center, you know, 1A uh, attraction in the college football world, and he was milking it. He doesn't shy away from that stuff. And that uh, plays to his personality perfectly, and it's fun to watch. And the young men he's recruiting, they love it. I mean, they, they, they love having that kind of personality and having the success that he had this year. Now, Matt Corral's a special player, but having the success that he had this year um, is it's great for the SEC. It's certainly great for the University of Mississippi. And, you know, he's, his name's going to be – mentioned is being mentioned with every job from LSU to I mean I we hear all kinds of different schools every year his, his name, name is going to get mentioned. brought up every year and yeah. it, his name will always get brought because he's that kind of coach uh did you hear uh Lincoln Riley though has a little uh, issue on his hands with this move he has two dogs do you know what their dog his dog's names are I don't Boomer, uh, Boomer and Sooner. And sooner. <laughs> oh, that's okay. They'll, they'll enjoy the California sunshine. I, I think that he needs to just come out and be like, the first two five-star recruits that commit to me at USC, they get to rename my dogs. Just, I mean, you can't rename a dog. How old is it? Well, I mean, why can't you rename a dog? You can just train it, you right? Rename a dog. Dogs okay. don't know their names do they do they they just know your you like your dogs don't know their names yeah they do i don't think we need to have like a dog expert to join us one of these days but i don't think dogs know like hey i'm boomer uh nice to meet you i don't think it it works that way well, it's like they it don't know like, like you, it's like when you come home and they've torn up the couch and or they've pissed on the rug and you look at them and their tail goes between their legs they don't know that they did something wrong they're just experts at reading your body language so i think that's kind of how their name works all right so if you're out in the woods and your dog's not like by your side if they've run off and you yell their name what is it that triggers them to come back to you is it your voice is it the tone of your voice is it what is it so i'm seeing here Dogs will learn uh, their name through classical conditioning. This means that they will learn to respond to their name when they, and they hear it said because it's just over and over again, so they get used yeah, to it. Yeah, it's repetition. That's why I'm saying it would be difficult to change the name because if you've been going by Boomer and or Sooner for the last, I don't know how old Lincoln's dogs are, let's call them three years old, three years, then if all of a sudden you want to go, hey, Trojan, get over here, <laughs> hey, Trojan. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't hey, know Reggie. A whole lot. I mean, my dog's name is Sadie, 
and she don't have a damn clue what her name is. So somebody tweeted at me that it should be Reggie and Lindell. <laughs> yeah, it should Thunder and Lightning, baby. Were they Thunder and Lightning? What were they called? Did they have a nickname like they're they're uh, they were dominant, man. Thunder Those USC teams were insanely good. Yeah, they were Thunder and Lightning. How about that? You're welcome, America. Speaking of thunder and lightning um, and other various weather patterns, it looked like the game was played in a snow globe at the big house on Saturday afternoon. I'm just going to open the floor to Travis Rockhold. Uh, He's had about 48 or so hours to process everything that occurred on Saturday afternoon in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How you doing, sir? I think I'm in the anger phase still. I think that's probably where I'm at. Uh, Why are you mad? What what is the what is the premise of your anger? The team just seemed like there was no fight. I, uh, for the record, I don't want any other coach other than Ryan Day. This isn't a. I'm not one of those crazy fans, but I just feel like Ryan Day just wasn't prepared for this game. Every mm. year that whoever's won this game the last ten or so years has won the rushing game and it was there for us. We just weren't running the ball. And I just, I don't know what, like, I'm still almost like, I guess I'm in the anger and still the, like what happened phase. It's just like, we got smacked in the mouth and it's easy to say, yeah, it was, it was coming because we've won for so many years in a row, but it's just like, this was one of those teams that had so much firepower and it's like, they just couldn't do anything right on Saturday. It was after the game. Aiden Hutchinson, who was already a world-class player and a top five or ten pick on Mel and uh, Mel Kiper and Todd McShade's draft boards, he played himself into more money on I Saturday. Mean, but he played himself he into. The, I mean, he, he should be in he New had, York for the Heisman. He he dominated that game and there were some clips that were mind-blowing of him knocking the left tackle for Ohio State off the ball. But afterwards, he noted and admitted that some of the things that were said by Ohio State personnel over the past year were motivating factors. Travis, what, what role do you think some of that commentary played? I think it played a big part, and uh, I have respect from using that. It's, I, it's almost similar to how Ohio state used Dabo Sweeney's 11th ranking last year as that motivation going into the game. I think he and others used, uh, there was a report last year that Ryan day told the team, we're going to hang a hundred on them. And between that and had never being, you know, victorious against him, they had a lot of motivation and they fed off of it. And, uh, for the players to bring it up afterwards, I've got no issues with it. We, you know, we've had, uh, Aiden Hutchinson on our old podcast at ESPN. He's a, he's a great kid. And you know, it's, he's one of those players that, uh, you know, legends are made in that game and he is now forever going to be held in high esteem for that performance. He had 15 quarterback hurries. That's unreal. Yeah. I mean, it was, he was utter, utterly dominant. And not only was he utterly dominant, but Michigan's offensive line was also dominant. I mean, Michigan lined up, and they ran the football right down Ohio State's throat. 
Uh, there mm. was no, I mean, I mean, it was, I'm going to hand it off to Hassan Haskins and I'm going to let him run the football behind an offensive line that was pissed off. They played angry. And you just don't see that kind of performance. Now, granted, the weather, I'm sure, played a role. Um, the, the, the proficiency that they were experiencing in running the football played a role. They just kept doing it. I mean, I don't know how many times they lined up and ran power, but it was a bunch. They just they were going to run it until you stopped it, and then they were going to run it again until you proved that you could stop it. And did the weather impact it? Maybe, but they, the, the, I mean, it could have been 75 and sunny, and they were still going to do the same thing. I don't – weather had nothing to do with I think this defense has had some issues, uh, and Ryan Day's got to fix it. And he's got to fix it. If it, it. was a, uh, a metaphor, I felt like this game was a hammer – taking on a Christmas ornament. Michigan had years of motivation, and Ohio State looked real pretty, but they just didn't have the resolve in this game. And I think Harbaugh's comments after the game, I'm sure Travis wasn't a big fan of those, uh, when old Jim said he's going to take the high road, and then five seconds later, doesn't take the high road. I love that. He, but, he, um, he's a yeah. clown. I'm He's just not like a clown. He, you, you're, you, you, it's just your bias, man. But he okay, no, so he personal. so he comes out and says some people uh, think they hit a triple and they were born on third base, and he's basically saying Ryan Day took over an Urban Meyer team. Harbaugh, when he came over to Michigan, they were they had a, that the uh, shelves were not empty. They had a lot of star players, and he couldn't do anything with it. And he was supposed to be this QB guru. And for years, he couldn't develop a quarterback. So, like, you were 0-5, bro. Like, maybe take this win and keep it moving? I don't know. I mean, am I bitter? Of course I'm bitter. But it's like, you know, I just found that, that comment a little classless. What do you think this does for the national perspective and opinion on Jim Harbaugh, Wes? That was weird. Ladies and gentlemen, while we try to figure out Wes's microphone issues, welcome to the Marty Smith podcast. Do you want me to answer we that just, question? Uh, we just roll right through it. I mean, sure, you can answer it. I, I uh, think it, 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 this win was the game that he had to win. You know, when he beat Wisconsin, it, it kind of helped. But the, the, uh, the narrative, and I said it too, was he had to win two games. And especially since he lost the Michigan State game, this game here washed everything away. Remember, he restructured his contract after last year. Some people thought he should have been fired last year. This is a game that changes how you look at Jim Harbaugh. You can't say that he can't win the big one because he went out there and not only did he win it, he crushed his rival. And so, you know, it's almost similar to James Franklin when they beat Ohio State a few years back. It was his future was kind of up in the air and that win was kind of the thing that projected him forward. And I think, you know, you can't question if Harbaugh can win the big one. Now, Jim Harbaugh beating Ohio state was a very loud message because of the context of what you're saying, Travis, he had not beaten them before. The national narrative was constantly negative that he can't win games against Ohio state and Michigan State. The national narrative was he'll never beat Michigan State and Ohio State. 
Ohio State was the second-ranked team in the country and dominating every single opponent in its path in the last month, including beating the number seven team in the country, the aforementioned Michigan State Spartans, 56-7. to A team that they lost to also. And they came into that game and utterly dominated the game. And the way that they won it, for whatever reason, it's the conditions add to the mystique. In my mind, it was a classic Michigan-Ohio State snow blowing, everything on the line. It had a lot of juice. It wasn't like Michigan beat Ohio State with nothing to play for. These two teams were playing one another for the opportunity to win the conference for the opportunity to go to Indianapolis and play for a conference championship. And if they win that conference championship, go to the college football playoff. Michigan's never gone to the college football playoff because of Ohio State. And so this was one hell of a statement. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I have, I, have, I have tremendous experience with both of these programs. I have been immersed with both of these programs. I have spent days on end in Columbus with the Buckeyes learning the way that they do it. And they are an amazing juggernaut. They recruit at the highest level. They develop players at the highest level. They're always well prepared. I've been with Michigan. I've gone around the world. I've gone to Paris, France, and Rome, Italy with Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines. I've seen the way the players respond to that man. So I have never agreed with the national narrative that he wasn't right for that program, simply because I've seen the way the players react. And he won't ever have to answer those questions again. I shouldn't say ever. Who knows? If he goes another eight years and doesn't beat Ohio State, I'm sure he'll have to answer the question. But he'll never have to answer the same question again because he did it. And he did it against a team that is capable of winning a national championship and won't have the opportunity to. He thwarted their opportunity to win a national championship. So to me, to Wes's point, I think we might have him back. And to Travis's point, I think we are in agreement across the board. This rewrote Jim Harbaugh's college football coaching legacy. That win did it. We got Wesley back. Brandon figured it out, or Wesley might have figured it out. He just logged out and logged back in. We're like, we're like the uh, Tandy or the Commodore 64. Nintendo uh, 64 when you were a kid, if, you, if it wasn't going like you wanted, you just hit the reset button. Just blowing the uh, cartridge. All right, Wes, what's your thought on Harbaugh, dude? All right, so I think about this rivalry – through the only lens that I can, because I know it the best, is Georgia-Florida. And last year, I heard all the same conversations that Dan Mullen reinvigorated the world's largest outdoor drinking party. And I didn't agree with it at the time. I think this one's different, though, because last year was a little bit of an asterisk year for a lot of teams. Certainly was for Georgia. Georgia didn't have a quarterback. Jordan Davis was not on the field. Florida had much more of a generational type of offense with Pitts and Trask. Uh, this game 
had every opportunity on the table for Ohio State to go out there and win, prove its dominance in the big house, and it didn't. And that's why I feel like it's different for Harbaugh. I feel like last year's Georgia-Florida game was a one-off. This year's Ohio State-Michigan game, more of a commentary on where the rivalry's headed. I personally feel like Ohio State still has more of the trajectory on a national standpoint, national level, because of its recruiting. It recruits more like an SEC school, but I think Harbaugh made more of a statement than people are are probably wanting to give him credit for. And to your point, Wes, I think had Ohio State been able to win, that would have been like a soul-crushing loss for Michigan, one that it's then like, if not now, then when will we ever? But by doing this, it's kind of almost like puts a rocket to their ass. And now like going forward next year, they're going to go into it with a whole different mindset that they've just never, they haven't had for a bunch of years. I mean, if they beat Iowa, they're going to go to the college football playoff. And that is my hell. And that's remarkable. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I didn't expect that. That's not something that I expected, not only like preseason, but as the season unfolded. Michigan was having a really good season. They were winning games they were supposed to win. They barely lost to a very good Michigan State team. For them to come out and beat Ohio State up is a resounding statement. And I think that we're, we won't be able to really define what that statement is for some time. I think we need well, greater a weird context. Year. Yeah, I mean, just like we were talking about with Oklahoma earlier and their, you know, different path uh, in, the, in the realm of the Big 12, you know. No Oklahoma this year, no Clemson, no Ohio State, potentially no Bama. I mean, it, it is a strange year, and it kind of scratches the itch of people who – we're clamoring for that college football playoff expansion, at least for this college football season, because there will be uh, a lot of different faces in those four slots this year. Travis, you want to say something? I can see it. I was just, I, I want uh, some changes to be made. Uh, and I know I, I came to the conclusion on who I want my new defensive coordinator to be next year. Chad Staggs. I want Ohio State to go get Chad from Coastal Carolina. He, the energy and the coaching that he has done, that's who I want to come in because I just feel like this defense has not had an identity for the ca- past couple of years, and he's the guy. Well, uh, well, we love him. <laughs> I mean, that's my boy, man. That's, my, that's one of my homies. I would love to see him get that chance. Uh, Look, it's, it, it is a very unique college football season, and we're still going to be trying to figure it out. No, we're still trying to kind of figure out what happens. The SEC championship game will go a long way to determining what the playoff looks like. If Bama wins, the SEC gets 50% of the teams in hmm. the playoff. If Cincinnati dominates, do they – get the nod if michigan dominates do they get the nod i mean it's uh it's gonna be something to behold oklahoma state that was a hell of a statement win too man that was a sloppy win it was like who wanted to lose the least they won the game 
And, I mean, you know, we, we talk all the time about Jim Harbaugh not being able to beat Ohio State, and he did it. Mike Gundy's record against Oklahoma was not good. I think he was 1-14 prior to this victory. It might have been 2-14. He, no, he's 2-14 now. Okay, he was 1-14 against Oklahoma. 1-14. And I, he never beat him as a player. He was 0-4 mm -hmm. against Oklahoma as the quarterback at OSU. And now he's won. And that team has a – look, I know, I know OU scored 33 points, but that defense flies around, and they got real, real bad intentions when they get there. If they dominate the Big 12 championship game, do they get the nod? It's fun. I love it. I think it's fun. Wes, how are you feeling about the Georgia-Alabama oh. game? <laughs> you what? I feel like Georgia's still going to win. Now, I say still – because I think the Iron Bowl was a qualifier for Alabama in a way that, Marty, you spoke earlier on in the season that you said that the loss to A&M was bad for the rest of college football. And we didn't really, we saw that play out from a wins and loss standpoint, but it didn't flip the switch to turn Bama into the Bama that we've known. Travis, to your point about Ohio State's defense, they are an assembly of really good players right now, but they don't have an identity. Alabama in 2021 is an assembly of really good players, but they, until the Iron Bowl, did not show a, a cohesiveness as a team that Georgia has right now. Did the Iron Bowl flip that switch? Maybe it did. I mean, that was a hell of a drive. And if Tank Bigsby gets out of bounds, we never see it. And Alabama is not playing for a college football playoff uh, spot on Saturday, maybe, depending on who you talk to. Uh, but that win required a lot of resolve at the end of the game that I think gives Alabama a little bit more juice coming into the SEC championship game. Outside of that juice, I think Georgia's X's and O's, Georgia's personnel, Georgia's coaching. I know it's Saban, and Kirby still has to prove it over Saban. But Georgia has looked prepared in every single game this season. And you can't say that for a lot of Georgia teams in years past. So um, I'm excited to see it. I still feel like Georgia's going to win and uh, take the step that Georgia needs to take. They need to show that there's a changing of the guard taking place. Maybe not in one season, but Kirby said he wanted to turn a battleship around when he was hired at Georgia. And... This is a big, big hand on the wheel of that battleship moment. You beat Alabama, you send a message that it's Kirby's time starting now, and uh, and Nick Saban is going to have to start to play catch up a little bit. I do laugh at the narrative and the notion, though, that Alabama has to spoil Georgia's season. I've never even heard of anything like that in my life, so that's a little funny to me. I mean, Wes, is, you got to be like on a high, though, right? You had the Braves, and now this. Are you, like, unsure what to do with yourself? I'm going to let it play out, and I will say that my Collins Hill High School Eagles are also knocking on the door of a state championship. They played Grayson um, at home this Friday in the semifinals in Georgia in the 7A state semifinals, and if the Braves, Georgia, and the Dogs all win championships this season, 
I will be insufferable to anyone near me outside of that bubble of teams because you're not you're not going to want to hear from me. It, it might be a tattoo worthy kind of season. I I've always said I need a legitimate reason to get a tattoo, and if chalk holds on those three teams, I'm calling up a tattoo parlor. What are you going to get tattooed on your butt cheek? Yeah, we need to work this out right now. It's going to be. What's it going to be? It's going to be the state of Georgia. Uh, a Georgia peach. Twenty-one. It's going to be twenty. Yeah, it's going to be the numbers twenty-one, and there will be a Georgia G, a uh, probably Chipper Jones face, and even though he wasn't on the team, doesn't doesn't matter. What you won't get like um, Freddie Freeman. I'm going to wait until Freddie Freeman puts ink on a Braves contract before I put any kind of Freddie Freeman ink on my maybe flesh. like a, a pearl necklace somewhere on the tattoo. Just a Jock Peterson <laughs> pearl necklace tattoo on my chest. Can you, if you Man, do this, can, would that be? if you get a tattoo, can we get it live while we're taping the podcast? Oh, no doubt. No doubt, man. No doubt. Um, but yeah, it'll probably be like the number 21 and it'll just have all the, the logos of my teams intertwine somehow. My wife's a graphic designer. She can come up with something for me, even though she'll hate the idea of it. She will be the one who designs it. One thing that's vital in the SEC championship game is that Alabama doesn't beat Alabama. Auburn played so great. They played they, – they were, they were tough. They flew around. T.J. Finley showed me a whole lot at the quarterback position. Uh, we knew that Tank Bigsby was going to be extremely important on the ground, and he had a great game. I'll tell you, 9 and 23 on that Auburn defense are both NFL guys. They both played lights out. But it's indisputable that Alabama had a ton of mistakes. And that can't happen uh, against Georgia because there won't be any coming back from those mistakes. Georgia is a very complete football team. Uh, it blows my mind that George Pickens was on the field on Saturday. Uh, I don't know what that means, whether or not he'll have any appreciable reps in the SEC championship game or moving forward. But that young man tore his ACL eight months ago, and he was on the football field on Saturday. That's huge for Georgia and its fan base. Um, the defense is what it is. Uh, it's a generationally talented group, and you know that they're going to give Bryce Young and the boys hell. I mean, look uh, – uh, this is not me making any excuses for Bama, but if you go watch the tape, they did have a lot of self-inflicted issues. Um, whether that's uh, something as simple as Jamison Williams, their number one deep threat um, on special teams, having a targeting penalty and not being able to play. That's a difference maker. I'm sorry, it is. Contextually, it changes the football game. Um, uh, the, uh, something that intrigues me, and I don't know what I think of this rule. I understand the premise of the rule, that it's a penalty when you continue to play to the whistle without a helmet. But you, players are taught to play to the whistle. And it being a personal foul, a 15-yard penalty, is wild to me. Um, again, I understand the premise of player safety. I understand why that rule is the rule. But um, it's a very detrimental rule when it occurs so i don't know uh bottom line of what i'm getting at is alabama has to be damn near perfect to win the sec and to have an opportunity to play for a national championship um i'll get down there this weekend i can't wait to get there 
The atmosphere is going to be amazing. Georgia fans have been ravenous for this for some time. Tua and 26 still hangs over them, no matter how badly they want to try to say it doesn't. It does. It does. Uh, that I, national championship you can see Wes's was eyebrows raised. And uh, yeah. they didn't win it. And that was in, I mean, in their home. I mean, it was an hour down the road at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in the same stadium that they will face off against Bama on Saturday afternoon. So, I mean, look, I, my expectation is, is that it's going to be an awesome football game. I don't pick games. They don't pay me to do that. It's no use because my job is to get both sides to tell me things. So, uh, I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, uh, I, it does me no good to pick games. What good does it do? They pay analysts a ton of money to pick those games. So, um, I just can't wait to get there. I can't wait to feel the atmosphere because it's going to be electric. Uh, Where does it rank for you, that that event? Uh, Kirby has talked a lot about it over this past weekend with, with various call-in opportunities. In the landscape of college athletic events or sporting events, period, the SEC championship is a special one. But, Marty, you've been to a lot more than we have. What, what do you think? Where does it rank for you as an event? Uh, it's way up there. Uh, it's way up there. Uh, the, the electricity is at a fever pitch for both fan bases that represent that opportunity uh, each year, whether that's LSU a couple of years ago, whether that's Alabama and, and Georgia and Florida last year. Um, I mean, look, Florida gave Alabama all they wanted last year. I mean, they – Kyle Pitts was un, unguardable in that football game. And they only lost by what, – what's 52 minus 46? Six points? Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm no mathematician, but that's one score. So, look – it's an, an amazing event. It's everything that the conference dreamed of when they devised it back in the early 90s. And it is invariably a contest that's going to send somebody towards an opportunity to win a national championship. And that's most certainly the case this year and could be the opportunity for two schools. It's awesome. Um, Look, I, I, to your point, Wes, I, I have the amazing blessing of covering some of the coolest events there are every year. American sporting institutions, the Masters, the PGA Championship, the Kentucky Derby, um, the NCAA basketball tournament, the college football playoff national championship. I Indy mean, it's 500. Just a, and yeah, it's it's just an embarrassment of opportunity, and I love that first Saturday in December because you know, you know what's at stake, and you know what it means to the fan bases. The SEC is different, and I know that the game. Look, the rivalry between Ohio State and Michigan is a beautiful thing. That level of hatred and that level of conflict and that level of utter disdain for one another 
makes everybody in the country pay attention whether or not you have allegiance. There's ex so much extra juice there that it becomes a national event. It's the same way in the Iron Bowl. Now, going into Saturday, a lot of us went, oh, hell, this year doesn't have any juice at all. Alabama's a 20-point favorite. They're going to win by 30. It's not going to be any good. Well, weird stuff happens in Jordan-Hare Stadium. Really weird stuff. And for all intents and purposes, Auburn had that game when none of us expected it. I didn't see a single expert Nobody pick picked Auburn. That. Did y'all? No, nobody even thought it was going to be close. Right. And if Tank Bids but Bigsby goes down, week, they win. Rivalry week just has that way. And that's what makes it so beautiful. The SEC championship game is rivalry week every single year. Because mm. the SEC has that hatred built in for everybody. So yep. it's uh I it's, talked about it last week awesome. about how many different teams Georgia hates. Which which uh, yeah, the SEC like one? The SEC's weird too, though, because they hate each other. It's like being your. It's like it's like family, right? Like I can talk all the in the world about my brother. I can hate my brother, but you can't. Which and city in Georgia? I'm going to have my brother's back in a fight, and that's the way the SEC rolls. Um, I want to know which city in Georgia and in Georgia hates uh, Bama the most. Athens. Athens. I mean, every Dahlonega. single one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dahlonega, you ever heard of it? Um, I will answer my own question before we move on here. I, I've been in Mercedes-Benz Stadium for multiple SEC championships, a national championship, and the Super Bowl. And other than the national championship, which incidentally was also an SEC championship, the Super Bowl didn't even hold a candle to the atmosphere that an SEC championship and a national championship pitting two SEC teams together does. All right, listen to me. I know every one of us is in agreement on this, but it needs to be stated on our podcast. I wrote this on the Twitter machine on Saturday afternoon as I sat there and watched the Iron Bowl unfold after what we saw in the game before we ever got to Bedlam. It's days like Saturday that are resounding, hatred-filled proof that college football is so much better than pro football. There's just so much more juice because there's tradition, because there's pageantry, because there's the bands playing, because it's just... The, the energy is so different. And... Look, it might be because I'm a Southern boy. We love college football in the South. My in-laws, and they love pro football. They're as crazy about the Eagles as we are about college ball. But it's also because they but don't even different. have – they don't even have college ball. Like, living in Connecticut, like, college sports football isn't even, like, a thing there. So, it's not – like, they don't even have an option where, like, growing up in Ohio in the South – you have NFL teams, but college is just better. Like, as much as I hate it, but like, if you're just they invented it, but the South like made if, it a thing. If you're a college football fan and not an Ohio State fan, that scene on Saturday after they after Ohio State lost was, I mean, the, the fields being stormed is just a thing of beauty. 
and you grow and being up with stormed it. for the right reasons being mm-hmm. stormed because you vanquished the demons being stormed because you're so starved for that moment storming the field because your coach shut everybody up that's why and like seeing Juwan Howard who's done a great job with the Michigan basketball program grab Jim Harbaugh by the face and congratulate him it's just beautiful college football is beautiful and listen we're gonna have another one on Saturday like I don't know what the Big Ten championship is gonna bring us I got no idea but I know the SEC championship is gonna be on fire man this is the first Saturday in a while for conference championship games where you legitimately have multiple games where you're like I don't know what's going to happen in the past. You've had some Ohio state Northwestern and Oklahoma was playing a team where you're just like chalk it up those games. Like every game that's going to be played on Saturday, you could make a case for one of the either team to win each game. Yeah. I mean, they all have a chance to matter. I think that's what it all boils down to. Like it, it doesn't really happen that way every year, but Iowa for damn sure can play spoiler. I mean, how about the start to the no season question. they had, and now they are circling like sharks to make their own kind of statement. What's on the line for them, Travis? A uh, trip to the Rose Bowl, right? Is and that if, is that and, what they can? Yeah, and for Iowa, like for Big Ten schools, especially ones that haven't gone to the Rose Bowl, like that is a lot to play for. And now people in the national landscape might think, oh, they can't make it in the playoffs. What's it matter? The Rose Bowl still matters. And it's there for it used them, to be huh? everything to the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Yeah. And the college football playoff damaged that a little bit. But there is no debating that if you're the Iowa Hawkeyes and you have the opportunity to go to Pasadena, you don't, you don't need no more juice than that. I mean, that's a dream, especially considering that on Saturday morning they woke up needing a lot of help to get to this place. And here they are. Oklahoma State, Baylor. I mean, Baylor's similar, too. Yep. I didn't even mention this off the top, but I have an interview that was really important to me. I loved this book. This book is called Across the River, okay? It's a a wonderfully done project by Kent Babb, who is an otherworldly sports writer and and award-winning journalist for the Washington Post. And he went to New Orleans, Louisiana, and he spent the 2019 football season with the Carr High School football program. And he learned how much more high school football is than simply what happens between the lines on Friday nights. It's a way out for so many young people across this country. And Kent did a masterful job of developing the personalities and developing the young men and bringing us into their homes and their hearts and their minds in what they manage on a daily basis that those of us who grew up in suburbia or those of us who grew up on cattle farms can't imagine. I didn't worry about my friends getting killed. That's not, that's not something I thought about as a young person. And that's something that these young men think about often, if not every day. And Kent did an amazing job of sharing 
that dynamic with us. And look, I'm going to tell you all something else. There's three guys here on this panel. Brandon may love high school football too. But we love high school football on the Marty Smith Podcast. I'm Uncle Rico. Any of y'all that know a damn thing about me know it. I had a funny conversation, y'all. We'll, we'll get to my interview with Kent in a second. But on Marty and McGee on Saturday uh, down on the Plains, um, I did not expect this, but we had Drake White uh, on the show. And he went to Auburn. He's an Alabama boy. Uh, he's had a really good career in Nashville. If y'all don't know Drake's story, we should probably get him on this podcast, Travis, and really flush out his story. Had a stroke. Had to learn how to walk again. Just a fascinating story, but it was funny because he was saying to me, hey, I'm a state champion too. I about wore my ring today. And I'm like, brother, we are kindred spirits. We are Coffee Town, West Blankenship. We are Coffee Town. I say all the time. Like, I, one, of, one of the chapters in Never Settle is called Forever Friday. I believe that if you played the game at the high school level, Friday night is a part of you for the rest of your life. It just is. You carry, you carry those lessons that you learn on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. You carry them with you. I was the least talented starting player in my high school's history. But I got the chance, and I won a state championship, and the brotherhood that we built lasts to this second. I drink my coffee out of a Spart Giles Spartan state championship mug. I love it. I'm actually beating the door down of our athletic director in Parisburg and my buddies. They, I saw them all wearing this hoodie. I got to have this hoodie. It might be an Under Armour hoodie, which means I might have to oh. like find a patch. You have to go MJ mode. You have <laughs> to go MJ mode. I'll worry on about that. that when I get to it. And I have a very busy schedule coming up. So we're going to have to tape a podcast here in the coming days that Travis decides to air at another time that's a bit more evergreen. Who knows what we'll get into. But one thing I definitely want to talk about on that particular episode is why Coffee Town happened and how in the hell it became a phenomenon because it's a phenomenon. Every single time Wes posts a video from Coffee Town High School, 200,000 views. It ain't easy to get 200,000 views on Twitter. Wes gets it in 24 hours when he does a Coffee Town episode. So, brother, if you're okay with that, I'd love to really dive in and screw down on how that came to be on a future episode yeah no 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 question i'd love to talk about it it's uh obviously special to me but special to a lot of people and um a lot of those people listen to this show so i'd love to dive into that yeah and the feedback one of the coolest things for me when i get to do a feature on espn or an interview with john christ we've talked about it constantly or luke combs or travis tritt or kip moore on the Marty Smith podcast, y'all go listen to those if you haven't, because they ain't just music episodes. They are life episodes. And when we get the feedback from you guys about how that touched your soul, that's what matters to us. And I can't wait to hear from Wes what that's been like for him, because I know that that thing has resonated to a tremendous degree. All right, speaking of resonating, let's get into it now. I asked Travis to go get Kent Bab for me. 
because I wanted to hear what it was like to go to New Orleans to immerse yourself in a culture that to him was foreign and to learn about what high school football is in that community and the impact that it has on these young men. Here is Washington Post award-winning sports journalist Kent Babb on the Marty Smith podcast. Man, is it a pleasure to welcome Kent Babb to the Marty Smith podcast, and I'll tell you why. Let me get my copy here. This is why. Right there. You can see it over his left shoulder there in his beautiful television shot. You can tell this gentleman has done a whole lot of talking about this book. It's called Across the River. And when I, I'm covering up his name, that's there we go. Let me let me let me do a better job here. There we go. Look at that. That's beautiful. Um, thank you for your time, brother. I know you're I know you're hammering, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes. Uh the first thing I want to know is where did the motivation for being able to share a book? Let me try to give a synopsis of it first. Basically, what Kent did was for 19 or 20 weeks in the 2019 uh, fall season, he went to New Orleans, Louisiana, and embedded himself with the football team at Edna Carr High School. And this is a, I don't even know if I can call it predominantly black, Kent. It might be 100% so. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, 100% black coaching staff and roster. So I uh, went down there to not only learn about the program itself and their sustained excellence under head coach Bryce Brown, but also the far broader scope that is high school football, not just at Edna Carr but in towns all over the United States of America, this is a refuge for so many. But uh, I think the first thing that I want to know is how, did, how were you introduced to this program and why, did, why was it on your heart to tell this story? Well, New Orleans is my favorite city in the country. It's like unapologetically who it is and they don't care, you know, and just it's a place where you just go to escape. And uh, it's kind of a place where you kind of try to escape the truth in a lot of ways. And uh, people who live there do that, too. So uh, you might remember when Will Smith, the former Saints, Saints player, got gunned down uh, in 2016. I went down for The Washington Post to do a story and it was in the lower garden district, which is like the ritziest part of town. I just remember looking around thinking like, how does this guy get murdered in a place like this, in this neighborhood? And I, and the thing that I remember the most about that afterward was somebody from the city called me up and was just like, I can't believe you're telling the United States we've got a gun violence problem. You know, when New Orleans has a gun violence problem, they were upset, yes, that this had happened, but they were really upset that I was telling them. Uh, a couple of years later, I met Bryce. Uh, a lot of my work at the Post looks at sports and kind of what they mean. You know, why do we care so much? And Bryce doesn't have any time for BS. Like, he's just super honest, says, you know, I don't have time to pretend like we don't have this thing. Uh, so I wrote a story, kind of fell in love with them, their culture, just how unapologetically truthful they are about these, like, real hard subjects. And I remember writing on my in my notebook in August 2018 when I was reporting the first story, and I wrote down, I never do this, but I wrote down, this should be a book. Well, it's a masterful, masterful book. Uh, I couldn't put it down. I read it very quickly, and that's saying something because 
reading uh, quickly is not my forte. Uh, unlike many of you guys uh, who are authors, I'm an author too. I don't read very fast. I'm a voracious reader now, all of a sudden out of nowhere, but for the vast majority of my life, I just wasn't. I couldn't focus well enough. Um, I focused well on this though. The One of the cool parts about it is it reminded me in certain ways of Friday Night Lights, and the number one way is the way that you develop the characters. The way that you not only share who these young men are between the lines and what's going through their head underneath their helmets in that context, but also when they leave between the lines and what's going through their heads and souls when they have to walk back into the neighborhood and into their home under their roof if they have one. And uh, the way you develop Joe and his story with his mom and the way that you develop all of the various different players, uh, I found to be very, very well done. What was the process of gaining trust? Slow, real slow. I mean, like I tried to, you know, and look, I mean, you, you said it at the beginning, it's, you know, this is a hundred percent black school uh, program. I am very much not black. I am not from New Orleans. I did not play football at any meaningful level. Um, I am as much of an outsider as you can possibly be. You know, I try to talk about myself, you know, share some of the things that I've gone through growing up poor in South Carolina, you know, and, and, trying to build myself a little bit uh, year by year and, you know, talk about that a little bit, but mostly I listened and, and sort of accepted my outsiderness and just look, you don't have to tell me anything. I want to, I want to know, you know, what you guys are dealing with. The other thing is, you know, football is like a little bit of a complicated subject in our society. Now it's still my favorite sport. I love it. And I mostly love it because of stuff like this, you know, we can say all, all we want to say about, you know, head injuries and injuries in, in, in general, that's real. But like in places like Algiers, which is just right across the river from New Orleans, the French Quarter, you know, we forget sometimes just what a role it plays in communities like this. It's a beacon. You know, these these kids are so poor, they don't have access to food, electricity, sometimes running water. And the fact that they can run out there and, and, and play, just suit up let alone win a game or compete for a state championship. That's a dream. You know, it's just an absolute dream. And then you can maybe go to college. Joe didn't even know what college was. Like he thought college was just something you see in a movie. So I spent time with them, you know, days and days, weeks and weeks, you know, kept my mouth shut and sort of let them come to me a little bit. Joe was amazing. His mom was amazing. His mom was in prison when the book starts. Uh, and they wanted me to know their story and they wanted me to share it with the world to, to show just how hard it is, just what it takes to make it. And not only the players, I was also taken that you were able to really dive deep into the psychology and the vulnerability of like local law enforcement, for example. I mean, you paint these pictures, right, of local law enforcement, of detectives sitting in a cigar bar, having a glass of whiskey and really searching for self. I just like, what, what, what was that reporting? Like, like, you know, this is an interesting interview for me too, Kent, because I can, I, I can somewhat understand being a reporter myself. 
I can kind of put myself in your shoes to maybe a greater degree than most about what that reporting might have been like. And that maybe that's why it fascinates me so much more. As you're chatting, these, having these vulnerable conversations with guys who all they want to do is unlock a cell phone because unlocking a cell phone might unlock a, a, a mystery and unlocking that mystery might finally give a grieving mother closure. Like, I, lo I love all of that. What's that? What, what, were, what were those moments like? They are really emotional. Again, like I, I try, you know, to, to own it and just sort of be a human being, you know, and it, it seems like so obvious, you know, seems really underrated. But, you know, weirdly, like being a human being goes a long way, especially in this line of work. You know, part of us, like me and you, Marty, uh, we have a job that has the, the cool factor. People think our job is cool. Um, a police detective, people think that job is cool. But there are some downsides to it that we don't always talk about. But I believe that like all of us have something in common. I've profiled Kobe Bryant, Marshawn Lynch. Um, every, everybody's got things in common with me, you know, and that's not the athletic part. And I'm OK with that. But, you know, just being a human and like having doubts and things like that. But, you know, sitting across from Rayel Johnson, you know, he he has been a homicide detective in a place uh, where homicide just happens all the time. And they don't make many arrests. They only make like one in three or like one in three murders leads to an arrest, which is absurdly low. And how do you just not go out of your mind? You know, he's actually really good at his job, but his job is is just not very successful, like in general. And how do you not blame yourself? You know, so we had lunch a bunch, uh, maybe drank some whiskey here and there, uh, maybe yeah, smoked a, a couple of cigars. But uh, eventually, if you start talking to people and, and telling them, you know, I tell them parts of my story, I, you know, tell them, you know, I've had some issues with anxiety and a little bit of depression, perfectionism. You know, I still think like every day should be the best day of my life and things like that. And what if it's not, you know, it's a little bit of a letdown. And so, you know, what if the story doesn't hit, you know, the way I want it to. Um, and, and so, I mean, like, that's weird, maybe, but like, it's, but it's true. I mean, I feel that stuff and I tell them, that I feel that stuff and it's honest. And, and in return, a lot of times people are honest with me. Um, I, I see no downside in being honest and human. You know, they teach teach us in journalism school, you got to be objective and you can't feel and nah, that's not me. And maybe I learned this through this book, but like I make no apologies for having compassion and for trying to understand and feeling this stuff because we're all kind of going through something and like if these guys realize that you're not coming in here all, you know, perfect, you know, maybe they'll share a little bit, bit of their lives with you too. I couldn't agree more. And I have the exact same operating philosophy. I've always tried to champion kindness, effort, and passion. I've learned that vulnerability is a very, very powerful trait. And it's a very relatable one. It's interesting that you're talking about anxiety and concern and worry. I've been battling a lot more of that myself just in very recent weeks that I've never experienced before. I'm not sure why I'm still trying to drill that down, but I just have this overwhelming fear that I'm going to let people down. And I don't know why I've never carried it before. I've always been a pretty self-confident person, but my greatest insecurity, I've always been an insecure person. My greatest insecurity is I like to be liked. And so 
if I feel like, and you know in our business, you shouldn't care about that. You almost can't or it'll drive you crazy. I don't know why that that insecurity for me is even heightened from a, its normal positioning. Uh, something I'm still trying to, to drill down on. I'll tell you, this is not about never settle, but when I wrote that book, I thought it was going to be, I thought my, the feedback that I was going to receive would be this. Man, that's neat that you sat across from Tiger Woods. Man, that's neat that you did this with this. It's Nick Saban. You went to China with Ronaldo, whatever, right? You and I have had the blessing of interacting with and learning from the most accomplished of the most accomplished in sports over the past 20 years or whatnot. That is not what I've gotten back at all. What I've gotten back is how beautiful the human element is and how powerful vulnerability is because I stripped myself in that book. I just I opened up my soul and I bore it, bared it. I don't know, Kent, you got to help me out with the grammar here. I don't know uh, that one either. <laughs> and, and, dude, I'm telling you, all the time, letters show up at the house of people who read that book. And they that's the, the feedback is, I needed hope. I needed something that I could hold on to that was a light for me. And that book is it. You saved me. And when you get that feedback, it's overwhelming. And I, I say all of that to say that that's the text you've written. If young people, especially young people, who might not see a path towards a dream can read this book across the river, they can see the path to the dream. Because these are young people who not only, who they might be gifted athletically, but there is so much in their path. There are so many hurdles that so many of us can't imagine because we don't have them in their path. And we also, and we also, we try not to think about that stuff. <clears throat> you know, I, I told you, you know, before we went on the air that, you know, I went, I this, my, when my voice is shot, I was down in Columbia, South Carolina, cheering all my Gamecocks when I played Auburn the other day. And so I'm, I'm still, still coming back, but like, it's really easy just to cheer for the Jersey and to say, Hey, you know, you made it to college and you're done, or, you know, think you work for the Washington Post or ESPN and, you know, you, everything's great. And like, it's hard to drill down a little bit more. And I think the, I mean, I, that's just a guess, but like, I think the reason that people responded to your book and have responded to mine about some of this stuff is, you know, we're talking about it. Like we're actually saying, you know, Hey, this is a thing. Like, no matter what it looks like, like this is a thing. And, you know, I don't know how, how old you are, Marty. I'm, I'm turning the big four Oh in a few months. And, you know, I'm still of the generation where, you know, when I played high school football, very brief, briefly, we didn't get, whole bunch of water and you know rub some dirt on it and i don't care like you're being soft out there and you know like it's just one of those things where if i'm having a rough day you know if like it's just not not firing up here in my brain like that that affects everything like i'm physically tired and you know it's it's tough for me and i do have this amazing blessed life like I, like I've, i'm the i joke that i'm the luckiest man in the world and these people like these young people in new orleans they've had it hard from the word go like joe who we mentioned before like he witnessed his first murder when he was eight years old that was over one dollar it was a dice game over one dollar <throat> his mom's been in and out of prison his whole life he used to have to hide in abandoned houses just to sleep 
And the only food he could afford right before his senior season was McDonald's because his mom isn't there. She's in jail. He's got no money and he's getting ready to be evicted. Now that's hard. And the interesting thing about this, and I think this is like a little bit of cultural chicken and egg, is that Joe doesn't think that like he dealt with anything hard. Now, I think he will. Like he'll eventually realize this when his life settles down. And, you know, like I don't know what like how you are, but I know every time I go to I try to go to sleep, that's when my mind wants to work. That's when I want to like think about everything just because everything else is trying to relax. Um, And I think when Joe's mind finally starts to relax, he'd be like, "Okay, yeah, like that was not you know, what it was supposed to be like. And then how do you deal with that? So I miss mean, a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a big conversation. Um, but I mean, I, it's, you know, you held up the, the book earlier and like, it looks like a football book and it kind of is, and we can talk about some football if you want, but like, it's more about, you know, mental health and poverty and racism and, you know, basically just what it takes. You know, when we go to these games and cheer for the people, you know, they are people. And like, let's just like, if you can think for five seconds about just like what some of these people did and what it took to get onto this field, man, I have way more appreciation for them. Definitely for the coaches. I've never respected coaches more than I do right now. Cause I, I never had a real appreciation for how hard it is. It's unbelievably hard. And I didn't take it seriously enough for a long time, even, even in my work. There are a couple moments in the book that I want to share with our, our viewers and listeners. Um, I can't imagine this uh, standing on. I want y'all to put your try to put yourselves in this moment. Standing on a football field after victory, celebrating with teammates, and witnessing someone from the crowd walk onto the field and threaten that they have a gun in their pocket and that they're going to kill you. I I can't imagine. And, and and you do a great job of describing like the aftermath and and fallout might be the wrong term, but the impact of what that moment was for Coach Brown and for his staff because it was an oh moment. This could have happened. It was right there to happen. And I mean, it just just I, look, y'all just you need to go get the book. But I, I want to hear this though, Kent. You've mentioned a couple times your upbringing and the difficulties that you had share, share that with us. What were some of your experiences? Well, I mean, the one thing that I have a hard time squaring today, age 39 circa 2021 is like where I'm at now, Washington post, Alexandria, Virginia, DC suburbs, you know, like get on airplanes, go see football games versus where I came from. And like, that was a double wide trailer in Cowpen, South Carolina, you know, dad, not really in the picture, um mom in abusive relationship after abusive relationship you know the only thing she ever told me you know growing up the thing that she was most consistent on was like you're going to college i'm the first person in my in my whole family uh to go to college and you know just like any old undergrad what community college whatever i'm i'm it um you know and like she had to put stuff aside you know one of the reasons i i really identify with joe and his mom kiyoka is because kiyoka reminds me a little bit of my mom. My mom wasn't in prison. She wasn't in the drug trade, but she had to make some serious choices. Like there wasn't always enough food for me and my two younger brothers to eat. Certainly not for my mom to eat. So she had to skip meals, could not have a career, didn't have access to the resources to teach her, you know, hey, you can, but if you have to do this, it's just too hard. It's like, and and more than that, 
you know, still in this country, it's like, it's too mysterious, you know, for single parents, for married parents, you know, it's just like harder than it ought to be, you know, to raise a family in this country, especially if you don't have money. And, you know, Christmas one year, I remember was like, she rented us a TV, uh, like put a TV in our room. It was like one of those like rent a center deals, like where you get it for like three weeks and, you know, that's got to go back. But for three weeks, we felt like we had money and we didn't worry about what it felt like when it had to go back. But for three weeks, like we made it. And I think like, that's just like a feeling that like sticks with you forever. Um, but I, and I think like, that's why I identify with Joe, because like, I've been where he's been a little bit, like not entirely, I never had to hide and abandon houses, but I've been in some version of where he's been and I'm at where he wants to go. And it's, it's weird to be on both sides of that and like, think about it. Like what would Cal Penn's Kent think about DC Kent? What would DC Kent think about Cal Penn's Kent? It's just like something I, I think about all the time and I wish I could have a conversation. When you look at it with life context and life experience and perspective, why did Cal Penn's Kent make it to DC Kent? I mean, I think I never settled, you know, like, um, I, there I you go. There's some synergy. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, I think that like, I, I took my mom's word seriously and I, I was just like, I'm going to go to college no matter what. And like, I got in as much as I love being a proud Gamecock, like that's the only place I applied. I got in, I'm one for one. Um, I grew up a Clemson fan. I found out Clemson didn't have a journalism school. So I had to go to the hated university of South Carolina. I'd, I've been paying for it with my sports soul ever since. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I just, I just wouldn't quit, you know, like I, I, I had to make it, I had to, I, I was going to disappoint myself and everybody else, you know, to your earlier point. And like, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't live with that. And like, um, sometimes it's not, you don't you don't necessarily know what you want to be, you know, what you don't want to be. Um, you know, and like, so that, that was me. Like, I just wanted something else. I didn't know what that was, but it was something else. And, and there's a lot of people like this. I mean, not just in New Orleans, but, but everywhere. I mean, like wherever, wherever you listener or viewer live, like there's somebody like me, like Joe, like a lot of people that are, that are trying their ass off and that pull yourself up by your bootstrap stuff. It's not enough. You know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you got to have some guidance and you got to have some luck. I pulled the heck out of my bootstraps, but I had a lot of people who helped me out and, and kind of shoved me out the door. Uh, and this wouldn't happen without that. And I know that. I know that every day. Without that empathy and perspective, do you write the same book? No, because it was still hard. You know, like uh, Kiyoka is somebody, you know, and I'll, I'll share this a tiny bit. The first time I interviewed her, and this is a little bit of a mild spoiler, but like she gets out of prison. First time I interviewed her is at her house. There's two dudes who I haven't been introduced to just like hanging out. Um, I learned later that Nick Foster, who was an assistant coach, uh, may or may not have had a weapon in the car just in case things went sideways. And the first thing she does, she's really intimidating. She's only about five foot two, but she's 230 pounds. The first thing she does is she looks at me in my face and says, you look like the people who locked me up. And I'm like, well, I don't doubt it. I'm sitting there asking like personal questions. And I just think like, it was a, that first one was a 90 minute interview in her home. I couldn't wait to get out of there. You know, I'm just like, okay, I guess we'll, I mean, she legitimately scared me because I've never been around somebody like that who has been in prison, who has had to make the choices she's had to make. So how do you, how do you write her 
with compassion, with humanity. And I had to do it. I wrote this book four times. You know, the pandemic gave me like an extra year. This was originally supposed to publish last August, not this August. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote four times. And Kyoko was the hardest person for me to crack. And finally, I was just like, all right, I know what I'm doing. And finally, like on that fourth time, you know, I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm not I'm not writing her with compassion or humanity. You know, I'm writing her about how I felt, how my white ass felt sitting in her apartment. I need to write from her perspective. I need to think about my mom when I'm writing about her. And it just it's just one of those kind of like aha moments where it unlocked. You know, it's just like you can hear that snap of the padlock open. And I was like, God, I'm so I'm such an idiot. Like, I, I should have thought of this the whole time because she is my mom, like a single mom struggling, making choices, not stuff I necessarily agree with in retrospect. But she made choices. And you know what? She gave her son a shot. Weird. Um, is your mom still around? Yeah. Yeah. What uh, conversations have you had with her in the aftermath of this? Well, she called me after reading the book. She read it really slow because she said she wanted to savor it. My mom is funny. Um, like everybody loves her. She, she should have been from New Orleans. Uh, she's crazy. Um, but like you, you, everybody knows somebody like this. I'm talking about just like wild. And like, um, you know, I took her to New Orleans a couple weeks ago, like one of the coolest moments of my life. I did a reading at a little bookstore in New Orleans, Garden District Books. And I brought my mom down to says she's been, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. Who knows? Um, but I took her down there. We stayed in the Garden District. <clears throat> and right before the reading, my mom hung out with Bryce's mom and Tonka's mom. So they came to the reading and it was like this amazing moment of like these three powerful, independent, strong women who got like no help at all and raised some, you know, some, some kids, some boys that, you know, had a shot, you know, really had a shot. And like it, I just like, I, that was one of those things, like, I just like stopped and like breathed it in. I'm like, man, like these are three moms having a conversation. They're just being moms, you know? And that was like one of the coolest moments of my whole life, you know, just before I did this reading and signing, uh, like just seeing that. And it was very cool to take my mom, like knowing what kind of stuff she's been through. She, she's like Kiyoka. She doesn't think that what we dealt with in cow pens was like a thing. I mean, she realizes like my life now is very different, but like, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't realize that like what bottom was, was bottom. She's like, Oh, that was tough, but it wasn't that bad. I'm like, um, so to, to have her sort of make this full circle moment and have her with me was unbelievably cool. We all want to have success when we do projects. Um, but when you dive into something as deeply as you dove into the emotion uh, of this book, ultimately it's a deeper connection than just the success. Uh, there's been that connection from your readership and your consumer base. What's that tell you? That I think that, I mean, a couple of things. One, people get it. And that's that's what you can never control. You know, when you're writing, you know, I'm still sort of the, the curator of the story. And like, you never know if people are going to care. You know, these are, you know, black kids from a high school in a tiny little suburb in New Orleans that nobody's ever heard of. And like, are people going to care? Are white people going to care? Are suburban people going to care? The people who read this care. You know, they they have cared. Like, I've been encouraged by the fact that, you know, even though, like, we don't know, we, like, maybe you haven't met Joe Thomas or Bryce Brown, 
Like, you know, Joe Thomas or Bryce Brown, you yep. know, somebody like that. And I always sort of say, you know, like if you're, if you're willing to make a little trade, just a tiny little trade, you know, I don't want to say this is like solves all of our problems, but like, it makes it a little bit easier. If you, if you're willing to look, trade a little bit of comfort for understanding that's, that's the cost. You know, if you just like make yourself a little bit more uncomfortable, you can understand a lot. And, and I think if people are just curious about like, how does it, how do you get to the college field? Like all the, the tiny steps and oh, by the way, like this is an all access, you know, kind of never before seen look at to like into a, into a high school program that wins year after year after year. I learned more about football through this high school program, you know, that, than I did in 15 years covering the NFL in college. They just like, let me see things that like ordinarily coaches don't let you see. Um, <clears throat> and now I use the car offense on Madden. I, I basically run the same stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and um, so, I mean, I don't know, like, it's just, it's just an interesting look. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an experience I'll cherish for the rest of my life. Cause I, I think I'll be chasing a story and access and, and a feeling like this for the rest of my life. A couple more things. I've kept you too long already. Uh, Bryce Brown is a, obviously the central character in the book, the central figure in the book. He is the head coach at Edna Carr high school. Uh, and you really walk us through in that text all of his emotion and his own personal battles that he's fighting every day just to keep these kids alive. For folks who haven't read the book yet, share with us who this man is and what he's doing. Well, the first thing you, you learn about Bryce <clears throat> is what you see. And he's just this mountain of a man. He's 400 pounds, maybe more. Um, you know, at the time he was 34 or so younger than me, but he, he could pass for 50 easily. Um, he, he treats himself really bad. And he's got this saying that, you know, like a lot of coaches, he's got all these like slogans. Uh, one is you have to reach them before you can teach them. Basically, you've got to connect with somebody before they're going to open their ears to you. Uh, but the one that a lot of people are kind of haunted by is you have to give a life to save a life. And a lot of people, including myself, like wonder if if he's sort of living that, if he really is taking that literally, you know, like very little brings him joy. He clearly has, you know, a lot of anxiety, imposter syndrome. He's never there for the party. You know, they keep winning these state championships. The party's happening in the weight room and he's off by himself, like drinking a Powerade, you know, complaining about the team picture. And, and that's just sort of bright, but like, man, Marty, I've been around, you know, like you, I've been around some of the best leaders, not just coaches, but just leaders of people, like people who know how to connect and motivate and inspire. And man, I believe Bryce Brown is one of the best leaders that I've ever been around. I've written about athletes and coaches, yes, but also politicians and billionaires. Bryce Brown, like he's got that thing. It's just like he has, he was born in a place that it makes it a little bit harder, you know, and like, he's got an eating disorder, which makes it a little bit harder, but like he, I, I, I promise you, like people are going to roll their eyes at this and Ken's just trying to sell his book, but this is true. This dude could call plays at LSU at Texas, you know, like it's a, it's so a different job he? to be. A, I mean, I, I think it's really hard for him to leave his like car cocoon. I don't think his weight helps because so much of being, a college coach is just like that eye test. And, you know, you see him, he's always in sweats. 
you know, he's got holes in his sweatshirts. Um, you know, he really does treat himself bad, but like also his thing is like, yeah, he could go chase a dream, but what if he leaves and somebody he loves at the school gets shot? You know, how do you live with that? So like, he's come close a couple times and every time he gets real, real, real close. I mean, he had a power five offer a couple of years ago and he just couldn't do it because he's like, man, like if I, like for him, it's just like the dread is more powerful than the joy. And if he leaves and somebody gets killed or the program falls apart, there's only one person to blame. Now that's not true. You and I know that's not true. And I think maybe even deep down, he knows that's not true, but he just can't do it. And, and like, I don't know what I want from that. Like people always ask me, do you think Bryce is going to leave? And I mean, I don't even know if I want him to. I mean, partly I do selfishly like for him, like I want him to go get his and like realize that like coaching at any level, but what he's at <clears throat> is not like this, but like the dude has chops. Like he's like the guy in a beautiful mind. He just like sees the game happening in his brain is like, Oh yeah, that's cover, cover three sky or cover three match. Here's the answer to that. I mean, it's, it's wild. Like I've never met anybody in, including in the NFL who can just like look at not even like film, but just look at an image, like a still image and be like, Oh yeah, this is what the defense is running. Here's like down in distance. This is where we're at on the field. Here's the answer. This always, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. He's got like a photographic memory. This dude, like he, he could and should be, you know, making $300,000 calling plays for, you know, NC state. And, and the only reason he's not, I think is because he just can't bring himself to leave where he's at. Such interesting psychology when you think about it, because all that he's doing every single hour of every single day is trying to show the young men in his stead that they can get the hell out, that there is another life out there that they can't fathom beyond the borders of new Orleans. And Yes, he went to Grambling, but he came right back in order to be the savior of all of these young men who grew up very similar, similarly to the way that he did. Now, I, I, there's one more character. I keep saying character. The word is figure. There's one more figure that really carries a distinct thread through the book, and that's Tonka. Uh, how does this ghost hang over not only the program but Bryce's every day so Tonka George um, was murdered in 2016 the same year that Will Smith and Joe McKnight the former uh, Southern Cal and NFL running back got killed all in New Orleans so that was like a particularly bloody year there um, Tonka's a kid who did everything right like literally everything he was a team leader like the supernatural leader um, who ran for 50 yards on his first play from scrimmage, went to like took car to the state championship game for the first time in forever. And then he, he went to Alcorn state, got his degree, but he made one mistake. He came home, came home to see his mom and he went for a walk. And that's just, it's crazy, but that's just something you don't do uh, in new Orleans. You don't leave your neighborhood. And somebody saw him at a gas station followed him home and killed him. And even now, five five plus years later, we don't know who did it or why. We have no idea. He was not wrapped up in the drug trade. He was not violent. It's just this huge mystery because he did it all right. Now, what if you do it all right? What if you get out and you still get killed? And that's what I think. So Bryce was at the crime scene that night, like a lot of people, because, I mean, this was like a local celebrity. And he's like standing there looking at this. And so he had just been a head coach, a football coach. You know, up until then, his job was to win games. Well, now it's suddenly 
you know, you've got to do more. You've got to learn all these life and survival skills and you've got to leave and you've got to never come back. I don't care if your mama lives here. You can't come back. Man, that seems like so hard to teach, especially when Bryce did come back. Like, how do you teach that? But, you know, the stakes are, you know, life and death, you know, like, um, you know, they've got a kid. This is crazy. I've never even said this before, but like they've got a kid, Aaron Anderson, who's their best player this year. He's going to go to Alabama. He just decommitted from LSU and committed to Alabama. Um, it was at the tail end of my reporting. Somebody from the team called me and said, I think Aaron is dead. I think Aaron has been gunned down because, you know, the shooting happened right by his house. <clears throat> and so they asked me, they want to alert the school yet because they were nervous, but they asked me to do some reporting and see if I could find out if the kid was alive. And I, and I did. And, and the answer is yes, he was alive, but somebody just a couple of doors down from him, a friend of his was murdered. And it's just something that happens. You know, it's just something that you deal with. You know, somebody called me and said somebody got shot. It's like if somebody calls me and you and says they got into a fender bender, it's just, it sucks, but it's just something that happens around here. And like, that's weird to me. And like, I, that's, it's just like, like I was like doing my research and like trying to figure out where Aaron Anderson was. And it just like struck me, like just the perverse nature of some of this. Like, I know somebody is dead. Somebody is dead. And I'm sitting here looking this stuff up, hoping it's some other mom's son, not Aaron's. And I'm just like, this is like crazy for me. What if you deal with that every day? So like, that's the thing. It's just like you get wrapped up in something you don't even know. And like this kid, I think is going to make it. If he can just like hold on for a little bit longer, he'll be in Tuscaloosa. But like, that's the stakes, you know, like if he had gone left instead of going right one day, you know, it, it might've been a very different situation. It's just so foreign to the vast majority of us, man. It's, it's, it's unspeakable to the vast majority of us. And the fact that that type of daily routine and scenario is routine, uh, is, is just really hard to, to fathom and rationalize. Um, how has new Orleans responded to your book? Interestingly, I think so, you know, when I was talking earlier, like for the most part, people at car love it, you know, and like the everybody's called me and said, man, like, you know, we, we feel seen like, you know, you didn't judge. Uh, you just sort of like put our lives out there. So thank you. Like I, 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 I fulfilled my promise. I was just like, look, I'm gonna tell this thing straight. I'm not going to juice it up. This, this is a story that doesn't need any embellishment. <clears throat> and, you know, New Orleans, though, the actual city of New Orleans, they don't know what to do with it. You know, it is like a hopeful, inspirational story of a program and a, a coaching staff that's really do it's going above and beyond, maybe going too far to save these kids. But if you acknowledge that there's a solution, you also have to acknowledge that there's a problem and their economy is based entirely on tourism. They can't be saying, you know, hey, we've got this rampant gun violence problem where the first two Saturdays of August, 10 people got shot on Bourbon Street, on Bourbon Street. They can't say that. So to acknowledge that there's a solution means also to acknowledge the problem. So they're just like kind of they don't know what to do. So like I've heard privately from some people who are like, man, like you nailed it. Like nobody's ever written New Orleans, and especially like black New Orleans like that. And I have to take their word for it because I'm not from there. Um, but people have been really 
reluctant to say that stuff publicly because it is an acknowledgement that, man, there is this gun violence problem and maybe we don't want to go down there and hang out on a weekend or whatever. I don't really think that's true, but that's how people in, in like government in New Orleans think. Um, so it's a little bit of a tough question. I wish that they would just sort of embrace it and realize like you can't like keep BSing. You can't like keep dancing around this truth because whether I say it or don't, it doesn't make it any more or less true. It just is. So deal with it. Let's acknowledge it. Move on. Let's do what Bryce Brown does and give him the real. I'm just learning right now that George Clooney and Smokehouse Pictures landed the film rights to this book called Across the River, Life, Death, and Football in an American City. Okay, how did that unfold, and <laughs> what does that feel like? Uh, pretty amazing. I mean, I was at the playground with my daughter, my four-year-old daughter, um, the week the book came out, and suddenly I just get started getting like a million texts. And like you, we knew this was sort of in the works. Uh, film stuff takes like an insane amount of time. And, you know, the day that it was announced, it was just like, I like, what, like, what is my life? You know, like I'm sitting here with all these like other parents, like just watching my four-year-old who doesn't <laughs> care at all, like what's going on. Like she just over there trying to navigate the sliding board. And like, I'm like reading these words about like my name and George Clooney's name in the same sentence. And it's just wild. But like, I mean, to be like momentarily serious about it. I mean, like, it's just like, I mean, th the story is worthy of the big screen, you know, like this is, you know, I, I do hope people read the book, you know, like I, I really do. But like, even if you don't, you know, like it, this is a story and it's people that are worthy of like being seen like on that, on the, on the big screen. I mean, it's like very humbling that like people, somebody like George Clooney and Grant Haslov, uh, like, think that this story is worthy of their time and their money and their resources. Um, but look, I can, I can see somebody like Brian Tyree Henry or, you know, somebody like that playing Bryce Brown, you know, like I can, I can see it in my head, you know, I'm not tired yet playing as the credits roll. And, you know, like this, this is, I mean, every time I tell people about this, about the book, even before the movie thing was done, they're just like, man, you're talking about a movie. Like this is, I mean, it's like, remember the Titans, you know, but, but real, you know, and like, this is real life. It's not coach Carter, you know, cause it, it cannot and should not be fictionalized. Doesn't need to be, <clears throat> you know, like it's, it's a real thing that's happening in this country and it's happening today. This didn't happen 40 years ago. It's happening now. Um, so yeah, unbelievable. I mean, just like, can't even believe it still. Well, you earned it. Uh, congratulations uh, again. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal piece of work. And as somebody who's a reporter myself, uh, I am, I marvel at that type of reporting because in our daily sports reporting lives, we, you know, we might, the most of us, I'm not, you know, Seth Wickersham or one of these investigative guys, right? That's not my deal. If I'm reporting on something, it's pretty much here and gone. So for you to invest this much, uh, I just, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm impressed doesn't even begin and congratulations again on all the success, brother. I hope it abounds for you and that movie's <laughs> going to get made and we'll chat again. I'll show you my, not only will I show you my copy of the book, I'll show you my movie stub. Take it. I like it. <laughs> Marty, you're the man. Cheers. Thanks so much. For this. I, I, I sure, I surely do appreciate it. Travis, as you listen to that, 
interview with Kent. Now, just full disclosure, like Travis was on there. He was producing at the time. Wes was not involved in that. So we won't dive too deep in. You guys just heard Kent's amazing testimony. And what he gave us was a testimony about his own upbringing in Cal Pins, South Carolina. And that reporting this book, I thought that was so vulnerable of Kent to share with us that reporting this book and, and learning about how some parents have to operate taught him so much about how his own mom had to operate. I thought that was awesome of him to share with us, not to mention what that program means to those young men at Carr High School in New Orleans. It was an interview where we, we've had different interviews before where you have someone that has a book or whatever and they're good interviews but this is one where it was like okay i really want to go pick up the book and you know hearing about the coach who could take a you know division one offensive coordinator job but one of the reasons he doesn't want to leave is he's afraid something might happen to these kids and i think you sometimes forget that that's you know these coaches get into their profession because they care about these kids and to just you know hear him talk about it was just you know unreal and I, I can't wait to read the book and then as you know we mentioned at the end of the podcast I was googling during the interview and George Clooney's already bought the rights to the movie and I you know I hope that gets made so the story gets told and more people get to hear about it it will it's such a dynamic read it's not only an introspective immersive peak into how these high school football programs in areas like where Carr High School is in New Orleans. It's not only that beacon, but it also, again, develops the personality so deeply that you fall in love with the people, that you care deeply for the people that Kent develops in the book their personality, their vulnerability, their insecurities, what it's like to grow up in an area where there are all of those hurdles and obstacles, and also the perspective of what it means to get out and how Bryce Brown, the head coach there at Carr High School, not only wants those young men to get out, they want him to do what he didn't do and stay out. He has that on his conscience every day. He wants to make sure that those kids stay alive. And that's a lot on his conscience every day. It's just an amazing read. Please go buy it. It's called Across the River by Kent Babb. You can get it wherever books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, certainly your local bookstore in your town. Go get it. It's a great read. Thanks to Kent for coming on. We're very grateful for his time. All right, we've solved all the college football problems in the world. Uh, in Look, thank you guys so much for investing in us. We, we love the feedback that you gave us last week. We're grateful that we could inject some joy into your life and make you laugh a little bit and debate a little bit and get angry a little bit about some of our thoughts on college football. Share your thoughts with us about what you believe Lincoln Riley going to Southern Cal means, about your prediction for the SEC championship, about what you saw in the game 
you can send your condolences to Travis. I, yeah, if you want to make Thank me feel, you. if you want to make me feel better, uh, five star reviews are best. And if you want to rub it in, say go blue with the five star review too. That that works also. What yeah. do they do, Travis? Rate, review, follow, hit the put, you know, punch that subscribe button, whatever it is. Tell a friend, do it all. Please do. We're trying to grow this thing, guys. Uh, it's important to all of us involved in it. We love getting to hang out together and have a cold beer, and we just love getting to just wrap college football and life. And thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for telling your friends and, and your family about it. And please continue. We love doing it. Thank you so much to our law enforcement officials all over the country, little towns everywhere, working hard to keep us safe. Thank you to our first responders and our firemen for running into the danger to save other people. And thank you so much to the United States military. Your sacrifice is wonderful beyond words. We're free, and we're, we're so full of gratitude that we can go out our door every day and do and be whatever we want because y'all are fighting and sacrificing every day for our freedom. Thank you, guys. This is the Marty Smith Podcast on Outsider. We got so much coming, guys. We are growing this company. We are so pumped about what we are and what we're about to be. Thank you all for being a part of our tribe. Have a great week. We'll try better next time.